love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 15 this morning. Mark chapter number 15. And if you'd like, you can flip over to Luke chapter number 23. And we'll read Luke's account as well. And that's where we'll spend a good deal of our time this morning actually is in Luke's Gospel. But we will, for consistency's sake, as we exposit Mark, read his portion, and then we'll go to Luke chapter 23 and read Luke's because Luke gives us more um, than something that Mark and Matthew does not. Um, If you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading this morning in the book of Mark chapter 15 and For context's sake, we're going to pick up in verse 21, but we'll focus in on the last several verses. Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, you read these words. And they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! Who You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with, with Him reviled Him. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 39 Um, You read these words. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you just to honor your name. And to say, Father, that maybe you're most honored in our greatest need of you. Father, we need you now. I need you now. Oh, Father, help us to come boldly to the throne room of grace. At the same time, help us to come humbly. Father, help us to come reverently and soberly. But at the same time, Father, as we crawl into the very presence of the Savior, may we call, crawl quickly, seeking grace, Father, and mercy, casting ourselves upon You, Father, um, claiming rights to nothing except Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Father, we come to Your Word this morning, a Word that no doubt You need not write for Your own sake, but You wrote for us. 
that we might know and believe. So Father, would you help us this morning to know and to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Father, for those that are outside of Christ, may this be the day that they are birthed into the family of God. Father, may you, um, by your Spirit, birth them again from above. Father, may you give them a new spirit. Place your Spirit within them, Father, and, um, and bring within this family of God a new baby and in Christ Jesus that we may um, seek to nurture in the, or seek to raise up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And Father, may you take that same gospel and that same Jesus, Father, for those that are saints, and just strengthen their faith this morning, Father. As we look into your word, God, would you encourage souls? Would you exhort and warn, Father? Would you um, lift up and edify, Father? Would you point us towards Christ? Um, Father, would you help me um, to magnify his name and his name alone? And Father, would you help the people to receive him? And may his his name be magnified, Father, in their hearts. So, Lord, we're praying this morning that you would save souls and that you would strengthen sinners, Father, who are saved by the grace of God, saints um, in the Beloved. And, Father, would you use all things this morning um, for your glory? And, Father, would you make us um, a people this morning, after your name's sake, that loves you today, Father, more than we ever have? Father, we need you now to accomplish these things because we cannot accomplish them in and of ourselves. So we commend this time, Father, to you now and pray that you will do what needs to be accomplished in our hearts. And just pray to help us, aid us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. You'll remember, I think most of you, all of you, um, that we have taking Mark verse by verse. So this morning, we simply pick back up where we left off. I'm in the exposition of the Passion Week. You'll remember at this moment that we are in Passion Week. You know, we get the term passion from an old Latin term that literally means suffering. When we refer to the Passion Week, we don't refer to the fervency necessarily like we would refer to um, someone with passion today, someone with gesto, someone with charismata, you know, charisma, um, someone who is really holds conviction. What we're talking about when we refer to the Passion um, is our Lord's sufferings. There is no doubt that conviction and and gravitas and Charisma and a number of other things are uh, re- resolve are in our Lord's heart that provokes Him um, to set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem, um, to give His life a ransom for sinners. In every generation and in every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're not only in Passion Week, we're in the last hour of our Lord's life, the Passion You'll remember in Mark chapter 15 and verse number 16 that at this moment He is being crucified. In some sense, He has been crucified and in the context of the passage, He is being crucified. Um, He's laid, been laid there bare upon a cross. He's been raised up. And verse 16 says, Then the soldiers led Him away into the hall called Praetorium 
And they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Um, At that point in the Scriptures, Jesus had already endured six different phases of a trial. Three under Israel and three under Rome. Pontius Pilate. He's been convicted on charges of blasphemy and treason. And now in this portion that was just read, he's been taken by Rome itself and the soldiers and being mocked and ridiculed um, based upon the charge that was held up against him. So he's, he's, he's um, mimicked. They, they mimic a king. They place a staff in his hand. They put a purple robe around him. It would have been a, a color of royalty. They fashion a crown made out of thorns and they place it upon him. Um, it, it is very likely as they spat upon him, it is as if they were coming to kiss the king and they spat upon him. And in some sense saying, uh, here is your king, a king of the Jews. Um, at some point, they get tired of that and they need to finish the job. So they take him to Golgotha. They compel a man, verse 21, Simon of Cyrene and the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they looked at that last week to bear his cross. Chances are, he didn't bear it fully, but he buried the light in. But he would bear the light in. Taking that cross all the way up to Golgotha, which they would raise it up, um, known as the place of the skull. And they would raise it up with Him on it. And the text in verse 24 says, And when they crucified Him, they divided His garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And now it was the third hour and they crucified Him. And the inscription of His accusation was written above the King of the Jews. And then it backtracks just for a moment to give us a glimpse um, within the crucifixion itself, in verse 27, it says, And with them, him they also cru- crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So that the Scriptures was fulfilled, which says, quote, And he was numbered with the transgressors, which is almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter number 53. 29 says, And those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And what you see is just the continual ridicule and mockery of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not only Rome. It's not just the chief priests. I'm verse 31. um, But it's also those who would come by and see Jesus as a spectacle. The text says they would wag their heads. They would literally um, involve themselves physically um, within the... Um, there, there was somewhat of an excitement in the crucifixion. And those, uh, those who would be even surrounding would see it somewhat as the games. You know? And they would join in and they would uh, join in with the crowd. They would mock the criminals. And that's exactly what we see here. We see Rome um, with the tool in its hand, the instrument we see... Uh, that the instrument was given to them by Israel, and we see all of Israel and the crowd gathering in around, crucifying the very Son of God, mocking Him, saying things like, Aha, you claim that you, you could destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Where, are, where is this king? You know, Where is the Savior? Verse 30, Save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, verse 31, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. It very well could be that the games continued there at the cross. Now you may look at um, the, the uh, Jesus Christ there with the two beside Him and think nothing of it. But often what you would see of a king, um, as the inscription is above His head, that what you would see that on His throne... There would often be subjects, one to the right and one to the left. James and John will actually argue that when the kingdom comes, one wanted to be on the right and one wanted to be on the left. It could be that Rome and the chief priests here have continued the games in their mockery against our Lord, giving Him His center place and placing His subjects before Him, making just an utter mockery um, of our Lord. Not only does He have His scepter and He has His crown, but now He has His throne and He has His subjects. And His subjects are... Um, a mockery in and of themselves, and they will join in, the text says there in verse number 31, uh, 32, 31, that um, they would join in with, with the bystanders and the walker-bys and the leaders of, of Israel. And these are the two men really that we desire to look at, at today. And I thought about an introduction, but really, um, this text needs no introduction. This is a portion of Scripture that chances are you all know. Every time Easter rolls around, um, it's hard to imagine our Lord and Savior there erected upon a cross without His royal subjects beside Him, what the text would refer to as thieves. There's a danger in a text like this. Um, this passage has been used and abused, but it's dangerous in the church for a number of other reasons. And one of those reasons is, is that it is known all too well. And what can happen this morning is that it can die the death of a thousand texts that we know, have heard, and, just, uh, and have moved on from. Thus, this text lies lifelessly upon the minds of its hearers. And we must remember this morning that the beauty of the Word of God, though it is that the Spirit, even though that it is well known, the Spirit can, has the ability to take old things and make them new, and to take dead things and to make them live. And that's what I'm hoping this morning, that as we gather around this text, that it will not die the death of a thousand texts upon your lifeless and apathetic and indifferent consciences, but that the Lord will use it to renew and strengthen your heart as we look into particularly a man that came to Christ um, in the strangest of moments. There's a danger with this text because we can also relegate it to a particular group of people, right? And this is a gospel evangelistic text that has been relegated not to the common crowd, not to every man, woman, and child, but to a deathbed conversion. Right? That this seems to be that text that you would bring up whenever someone is there dying of cancer, or you have someone that is just beyond salvation, it seems. That they've wasted their entire life, and we cling to this text in some sense of a hope that they will finally and fully come to Christ. And let me say that that is rightfully so. Thank God for this text. 
I think it was either Spurgeon or J.C. Ryle, I, I forget which one, who said that the, the, the fact that this man comes to Christ gives us hope. And this is a paraphrase. I don't remember the exact phrase. Um, but, but, but only one that we may not presume upon the grace of God. That it is a joy to preach this text to those that are dying, that have not came to Christ and wasted their life as, as, a, as, as a hope that they can be with Christ in the next life. But at the same time, we recognize that that seems to be a rarity, not only in our day and, and geographically, but historically, that by that time, often people have hardened their heart um, in their sins such to the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that they will never come. Yet this text gives us hope that we continue to preach the gospel, that, 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 that it is not a continual casting of, of pearls before swine, that, 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 that there is some hope that the gospel can bring dead men to life even in their last days. But, but it shouldn't be relegated to that crowd alone. You know, that we shouldn't just cast this aside. Not only that, but we, we, we somewhat uh, account it to second-rate or second-class Christians. This man is... Um, somewhat of a second-class Christian. And there are even people out there that can get upset with our Lord because He saves people in this hour. Right? Yeah, Matthew chapter 20 gives us an interesting parable that's often referred to the servant of, as, a servant of, as the servant of the 11th hour. If you go back and you actually read that passage of Scripture, what you find is, is that, that, that our Lord gives a parable of the kingdom of heaven. And He says it's like this. It's like a, a, a master of a vineyard, an owner, a landowner who hires people in the first hour. And He, and he promises them a wage. He does the same in the third hour. He does the same in the sixth hour. He does the same in the ninth hour. And He does the same in the eleventh hour. And He promises that person in the eleventh hour a wage. And when reckoning comes at the end of a long twelve-hour day, in that last hour, He begins to exact out or administer rewards. And the reward is a day's wage. He starts with the man who, who came at the eleventh hour. And He gives him what He promised him. What does that do to the rest of the crowd? Jesus, and this is a paraphrase, but, 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 it, but, it, but it, um, it, it angers in some sense. It dissatisfies. Why? Because the man who came in the first hour uh, thinks that he deserves more than the person who came in the eleventh hour. And Jesus says to him, or the, the master looks and says, what have I done? Have I done you wrong? No, the answer is, is that I gave you exactly what I promised you and I gave him exactly what I promised him. That there is an equality across the board here, and that um, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That, 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 that I've not done you wrong. I've given you exactly what was desired. And what it can do is, is that we can look at the man who came in the last hour, and we can think that he's somewhat of a second-rate Christian, and even become upset because God saves men like that whenever you have men like the Apostle Paul um, who gives his entire life, decades, to be beaten, battered, and bruised. And what about this man who comes in at the last hour, five minutes of his life, and receives the exact same eternal hope? But what we find is, is this man is not a second-rate Christian at all. He's a Christian. But there is only one kind of Christian, and that is the child of God. That, that, that you may come in the first hour, and he who comes in the eleventh hour are all the same because you're in Christ. And when it's all said and done, all, had, all that has ever came has ever came by the way of Christ and His grace. 
And that's what you see in this text. It's not a wasted life. Do you think he thought it was a waste? Of course he thought it was a waste in some sense. And that's why we today, even to our children and to, to some of you and to those that are out, we, we, we urge that today is the day of salvation. You know, we, we, we urge that you are to remember your Creator in the days of your youth, that you are not to spend your entire life um, blaspheming a holy God, rebelling against Him. You are created in His image for a purpose, and you are to use the entirety of your life for that purpose. But in, in another sense, that if a person comes later in life, we don't necessarily should see it as a waste. I don't see my life as a waste. I count it as a blessing of God that He would put me in such a position, such as a cross, that would provoke me to Him. Can you imagine that had the cross been removed, would He have ever came? Would He have had a few moments in the last moments of His life to enter into glory and to give God everything that He possibly had in that moment. This is a beautiful story of the grace of God upon all men. And may we sit at the feet of Christ this morning and glory in the grace that He has and at the same time have a godly jealousy even over the faith of this penitent thief. And I think that as I've read this passage and meditated upon this this week, um, that the Lord has used it overwhelmingly to strengthen my faith and even give me a godly jealousy in some sense over the faith of this penitent thief. That yes, he only had a few moments to honor and glorify Christ with the life that he had. But in it, you see somewhat of a fruit, uh, more fruit than you see in some quote-unquote Christians' lives that have lived in our culture for three decades. And this man, because he was born of the Spirit, seems to bring an authenticity um, to the text and to the life and to the, all those that are around him um, that is not otherwise born in natural by natural means. This text is a blessing to all men, that it's not to be relegated to a particular population of people that are hard to convert or seemingly gone or in their last moments. Nor is, it, nor is this man a second-rate Christian, but he came in, he came in at the 11th hour and, and his God is the same as our God. And he promises Christ to all men, regardless of whether or when they come in this life. And he offers salvation full and free to all men. And it should encourage our hearts this morning as we learn what it is to believe on Christ even from this man. J.C. Ryle and, uh, he writes concerning the conversion of this thief. He says, the verses we now have read deserve to be printed in letters of gold. They have probably been the salvation of myriads of souls. Multitudes will thank God all eternity that the Bible contains the story of the penitent thief. And I think that's true. I think this morning as we think of a penitent thief, we think of a deathbed conversion. Really, we think about the conversion of all men. You should think about your conversion and you should think about my conversion because the story is essentially the same. That God simply saves sinners. So let us for a moment just glory in the reality that God saves sinners. Luke chapter 7, what should it do? It should, it should exalt our hearts. It should exalt us to worship in the Savior this morning. That when you look at these men, you see the utmost of wickedness and debauchery and depravity. 
That when you look at the character and the condition of these men, what you find is that these men were no ordinary sinners according to the cultural standard. That this man, that these men would have been considered the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel of sinful, wicked humanity who deserved to be put to death according to natural and even spiritual standards. That's what the text says. But at the same time, we run to a text like this this morning and we herald the Gospel forth, not necessarily to make you feel horrible about your sin or to beat you up or to take a legalistic rod to make you walk and toe the line. In some sense, we preach human depravity, total depravity, the the wickedness of the the core of, of man that He pervades all of life and beg you to look inside yourself. Why? So that you may run to Him. Either as an unsaved sinner or as a a, a saint by the grace of God, that that, that it would overwhelm your soul, the grace that God has extended to you in Christ and pulled you out of the pit of despair and made you a child of the Most High God. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 7 and verse 41 and on. Our Lord gives a parable of of, of two men who were in debt and he asked him a simple question. And again, this is a paraphrase. You know, one's in our common day vernacular, uh, one's in debt $50 and one's in debt $5 million. If the debt's cared for, who do you think is more thankful? Of course, the one who has been forgiven $5 million. That's his reasoning. It's logical that one who understands that he's been forgiven more is more thankful. He's more forgiving. He's one that is more likely to be forgiving unto others. And that when we have a healthy understanding of what God accomplished in our lives, the magnitude of His grace because of the depths of the sin of our hearts and what we have, have, have done with our lives should just, it just cause us to exult in worship to a Savior who would save sinners like this and sinners like us. That, that, that this text should first cause us this morning, if we are saints in the grace of God, to, to, to exult in our Savior. Just magnify Him because of His glorious grace. But these men were no ordinary sinners. You know, the King James translation, if you have that this morning, refers to these men in Mark as, as thieves. The New King James refers to them as robbers. The Greek word, or the original word is kleptomace. It's where we get our our, our term from kleptomaniac. He's a a thief. He he can't keep his hands to himself. But he's he's more than just a a, a petty thief. He's He's a person who operates as a group with wicked associates who use violence to achieve their end. You think of a thief as one who breaks into your home when you're gone and takes some of your things. A robber's one who commandeers your car by smashing in the window, punching you in the face, taking your money and leaving you um, bleeding and half dead. You'll remember the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? What happened there? There was a man, a Samaritan, coming along the way. Or there was a, a, a man coming along the way and the Good Samaritan comes by. But before that, what, what happens? He's, he's left for dead. There were robbers hiding in the way. Organized crime coming to steal everything that he had and they would accomplish it by, by violence. But that's the idea here. Josephus, a Roman and Jewish historian, actually uses the same word for revolutionary Jews rising against the Roman government. The idea here is 
is that you'll remember Barabbas. The text refers to him as an insurrectionist, a rebel. Um, one who is pervasively pursuing to rebel against Rome and to rise up and to create a faction, to rise up and to overthrow Roman government. Chances are that these two men were his accomplices. It's likely that in one of the demonstrations, the rebellion against Rome, one of them or, or one of them or many of them killed and murdered another person. That's Barabbas is, is titled the murderer in the Gospels. The robbery and thievery were not capital crimes under Rome. What would have had to happen is that in one of their um, escapades, as they entered in, just like today, let's say that a man's uh, he, he's broken down a door, he's going in to steal jewels in a, you know, or, or, or to take a bank in a bank robbery. What happens? Somebody comes along, gets in the way, and they murder that person to, to complete the task. This is the idea. If these men were just not common rabble-rousers, they weren't just jewel heisters, they weren't just thieves in the common sense, that, that to receive capital punishment, chances are that in the midst of a raid or a rebellion, an insurrectionist, um, that what they would have done is they, they would have killed a man to accomplish the goal, and they would have been taken captive, and they would have been persecuted under Rome. And one way that I understand, and one way that we can understand that this is correct is that here in just a moment, in Luke chapter 23, um, one of the criminals is going to say that we are suffering justly according to our deeds. That when we are crucified, being crucified, we will meet our end. That is a just act. That the crimes that we have committed are ours. And the penalty is right. Capital punishment is appropriate. There was must something going on here that was more than just common thievery or a general heist. These men were of the worst. Imagine it. You're going home. There's a lull in traffic. There's a man hiding behind a bush. He has a gun in his hand. He's just waiting. You know that it's a rough part of town. You know that things like this happen all the time. You're alone. It's in the middle of the night. It's a wife, your wife and children. They're just trying to make it home. Someone's waiting in the wings behind a sign in the midst of dark. There's a stop sign there. Um, as soon as they stop, the man rushes out um, to, to take the car, to steal the money, to leave your wife and children there to bleed to death. In the midst of it, what they don't know is, is that you have a wife that can take care of herself. She gets into a fight with him and he kills her. This is the type of man we're talking about here. This is the type of man Jesus saves. The type of man that should go to jail and he should suffer the consequences of his actions, possibly even capital punishment. But, but Jesus hangs here upon a cross and He prays for men like this. That these are malefactors, the King James says in the book of Luke. New King James refers to them as criminals. The word there is a compound word could literally be translated uh, evil workers. That Luke wants you to know that the men that are hanging there upon the cross next to your Savior were not only robbers and murderers, but they were literally evil workers. They fed on it. They were motivated by it. It was in their hearts and it bled out into their hands. The law of God meant nothing to them. Uh, there was no fear of God before their eyes. There was no morality. Um, it, it was null and void. They may have struggled from time to time with a conscience, but their conscience couldn't win. It did not win. The moment did. Their lust for money took the day. It seized the hour. 
And thus, they are, they, they, they are controlled by their inner man, their emotions in a godless state such that, 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 that it even causes them to organize. And when, when push comes to shove, they don't make the right decision. They, they kill the woman in the dark. Why? So they, they won't be caught. Regardless that she's an image bearer of God, regardless that there's children in the back seat, regardless that she has a husband at home, regardless that she has any, that she has the ultimate value altogether, he chooses himself every single time. But this is the idea here. He's a criminal. He's made a lifestyle out of it. And he seeks to take the lives of others. And he hangs justly there upon a cross next to an, an unjust, an unjust uh, charge against an innocent man. Here they are. Not only that, they're blasphemers. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that he was mocking Jesus before his conversion. When the crowds were mocking our Lord's helplessness, they, they railed against him as well. They challenged him to come down. Luke actually tells us that one of these men, um, the, the, the other, looks at him and joins in with the crowd and says, if you're the Lord, then save yourself. Take yourself down from here. And even save us. And it's not a challenge in the sense of, of, of challenging and testing our Lord to see if He's God. The, 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 there's no doubt hatred, anger, fear in his heart as he hangs there upon a cross. And the true man comes out and it's not a single action. The, 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 the term there is, is in an imperfect tense. It gives the ideal of a continual railing. This wasn't just a one-time thing. This was a heart, uh, lips manifested with a heart of hatred that just continued to mock our Lord, um, the very Son of God. They would join in and blaspheme that these are men who are by nature enemies of God. Suffering the just consequences of their crimes. They were evil workers. Um, they fed on it. They were criminals. They were robbers. They were violent men. At the very heart, there they were receiving the just penalty of their actions. This wasn't, these weren't men who were unjustly confined and condemned, and they need to be given a good trial. They've been tried. And they've been found guilty. And they're receiving the reward of that. The robber was suffering and, the, uh, and he was receiving the just penalty of the civil magistrate. Luke chapter 23 and verse 40. And it says, when one of the men blasphemes God, the other says something that's just the strangest. Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You know, they're hanging there upon that tree, they're receiving the due reward of their deeds, and he recognized that they deserve to die, and for them to die a death of a thousand deaths upon a cross was not an abuse of justice, but it was a moment one of the criminals recognizes that it was the penalty of their lives. They deserved every bit of it. And we see a criminal's confession and the evidence of conversion in the most unlikely of places. I know you think it's likely because you've read it a hundred times. But it's like thinking about... Ultimately, I think about men who will never be converted. And I think about one particular man in my life. And I think he's the most wicked of men. I shudder to hear his voice. I know him personally. And I think, I don't know if I want God to save him sometimes. You know? Like, it's that wicked. 
And I think that's this man, you know? He's the worst of the worst. But then I think, if I, my heart was not restrained, I would be as well, you know? Some of the things that I think on some days, and the man that I used to be, and the man that I wrestle with every single day and seek to crucify, like in some sense you think, why would God ever save me? Why would God save this man? Because this is the thing that God does. Because He's love incarnate. Because He's selfless and sacrificial. Because this is really the only type of men that God saves. Those that are rebels at heart. Those that are enemies with God. Those who at their very core, without restraint, without a conscience, without authority over them, without parents and without, without, that, without a civil magistrate, um, would, 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 would take dominion over the earth and build it even greater than naturally came. You know, a city of destruction. And He would rule and reign in it as King and as the God of that realm. That's what we see when men go unrestrained. And that's really what is prevalent and evident in the heart of all men. Thus God gives us authorities over us to restrain us. And then, and then, then the Gospel comes forth in a man like this in the most unlikely of places and, and converts a man. This is what God does. This is who He is. This is how He operates. This is where He shows Himself forth most glorious. In a criminal's conversion in the most unlikely of places. There upon a cross. And we see the great evidences of that. We see the fruit of conversion in His life both doctrinally and morally. Number one, He comes to the defense of, of God. And rebuking his companion as a partner in crime. Uh, Luke chapter 23 and verse number 40. That's what you read. One, uh, verse 39, one of the criminals who were they hanged blasphemed him and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. One takes up railings and blasphemy against our Lord. What happens to the other? The other answers rebuked him saying, do not you even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation. That we believe that, that, that we can conclude that this man was saved because of the radical change of his heart. That, that he rebukes his companion that he does not fear God. It would make one believe that the fear of God was born in this man. Now restrained him from blasphemy to the result of Christ's proper defense. He would no longer follow his own heart, nor would he capitulate with the crowd. He, 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 no, longer, he, he no longer cared what the world thought, where the crowd went, what his friend said. This is, and this is huge. Like this was a guy who was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. This was his life. He was dying with a comrade. But now his heart has changed. His chief concern is God's glory, His name. It's, it's no doubt undergirded by the love that God shed abroad in his heart. He could no longer join in the railings. He could no longer bear um, it in the, in the ears of his mind, his heart, even among his comrades. His allegiance is dramatically changing. His repentance is paramount. It's an about face, a 180 degree turn. His railing against the Savior are now turned into rebukes against Christ's enemies. There's a great change in his heart. It's no longer self-preservation. Now it's self-sacrifice. I don't care what happens to me. Do you understand that? Imagine a soldier for a moment who's given his allegiance to a country for 50 years. I mean, he's fought for them. He's bled. And he's died. Um, day in and day out. That's this man. 
This man has given his allegiance to Israel. He's an insurrectionist. He's a political power. He's given his life to change, to overthrow Rome. Um, he's fought. He's bled. He's died. He's now being crucified as a result of it. Um, this is a complete change. This would have been treason against the nation. For him to take up, up, up that cross and, and to confess Christ, with, uh, it would have been greater than, 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 than baptism in some sense. That this profession, um, would, would, if the cross didn't kill him, possibly they would have. And, and if they wouldn't have, then it would have been a total life change. It would have changed everything. That this man is no longer a rebel against the Christ. Um, he's a soldier for him. We see not only that, but we see a change of mind towards his sin. Verse number 41, And we indeed justly, he says, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Up to that point, no doubt, he justified his sins. Right? I'm working for the liberation of Palestine. The insurrection is justified. Look at Rome. Murder is legitimate because we're God's chosen people. We must revolt. Look at the injustice that's coming upon Israel. Look what Rome is doing. Let us say, no doubt they justified within the camp their, their, their immorality to overtake and to overthrow even an unjust, uncivil nation. And now we're dying, we're dying an unjust death. People would have gathered around holding them up as martyrs for their faith. They would have been emblems and heroes. There would have been other insurrectionists that would have brought their children there and said, look at Him. Be like Him. Dying for His faith. You know, dying for the cause. Look what, he's, look what He desired to do for His people. And now, He rejects it all. There's a, a dramatic change in His life. Now he loathes it and he even accounts it as sin. His whole life, he acknowledges that he deserves to die for what he's done. He rightfully acknowledges that God's wrath against him for his own sin is just. He blames no one else. He doesn't lay the charge upon Israel's leadership. He doesn't blame the leaders of the insurrection, the false teachers that he no doubt once clinged to. No, no one else is to blame. He understands that in his heart, he wanted to believe those things. His heart gripped those teachings like a hungry stomach that indulges in garbage. Like the exceptional obese glutton uh, blaming fast food for his disease-ridden body. <laughs> when the reality is, is that they are often the creators of an unhealthy, uh, of an unhealthy food, but, but, but it was his appetites that caused him to pursue it day in and day out. Thus, they're not to blame. I'm to blame for indulging the lust of my heart. All they did was give me tools of my own destruction and demise. And that's all of us. Godless appetites pursuing tools to carry out our own lust, thus leading to our own demise. That's what he did. Sure, Israel is responsible for shutting up the kingdom of God to its people, but at the same time, the people are guilty for wanting it. Heaping up to themselves teachers, having itching ears, gathering people that will tell them what they want to hear, and taking it in as fuel for the rebellion. That's what he was. Not a completely innocent bystander taken captive by eloquent men, but an accomplice in rebellion. Lamentations 3.39, why should a living man complain? This was his heart. Why should a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord, Lamentations says. He was no longer willing to complain for the just punishment of his own sins. He was no longer willing to lay the blame upon anyone else. He laid no demand upon grace and he was ready to receive the penalty of his deeds. Um, 
definitely the evidence of repentance. Not only that, he openly confesses Christ. Verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's not guilty of any sin. The, the word there, wrong, is, is it's, it's not out of place. It's not amiss. You may have a translation that says, in the last moments of his life, he's racked with pain. He recognizes the righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit graciously transforms the thinking of this man in reference to Christ and he who he was railing against, he now defends. And he defends with his righteousness. He who once was an object of hatred in his heart is now pure, holy, innocent, undefiled, and righteous. Even to the point where this man publicly rebukes his comrade and a whole nation. Acknowledging that this man, we're dying justly, but not this man. Not this man. Not only that, he prays for mercy. Luke chapter 23 and verse 42, he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Lord. Lord, remember me. He acknowledges that Jesus is the messianic king and the son of God. This man, um, was, a theologian was born. You know, a heretic converted and a theologian with minimal instruction, no Bible study, no preacher, no church to be involved in, uh, has a greater theology than most Christians today who've been, who've been converted supposedly for three decades. He understands that He's the Messiah. He understands His righteousness. He understands He's the Christ. He understands that a kingdom is coming and He understands that it won't happen in an overthrow of Rome. Why? Because He understands that the kingdom will be born that day, he understands that Christ is going to be crucified. He understands the theology of a, of a suffering Savior. He understands that He's not coming down from the cross. He understands He's not overthrowing Rome in that moment or even on that day. Thus, He asked to, for Him to remember Him in that day when He comes into His kingdom. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Really, it's, it's truly phenomenal. Calvin writes these words concerning this man. He says, I know that since the creation of the world, there was never a more remarkable and striking example of faith. And so much the greater admiration is due to the grace of the Holy Spirit of which it affords so magnificent a display. A robber not only had not been educated in the school of Christ, but by giving himself up to an ex execrable murders, had endeavored to extinguish all sense of what was right. Suddenly he rises higher than all the apostles and the other disciples from the Lord himself had taken so much pains to instruct. And not only so, but he adores Christ as king while on the gallows, celebrates his kingdom in the midst of shocking and worse than revolting abasement and declares him when dying to be the author of life. He goes on to say, even though he had formerly possessed right faith and heard many things about the office of Christ, and had been given, and, and had even been confirmed in, in it by its miracles. Still, that knowledge might have been overpowered by the thick darkness of so disgraceful a death, disgraceful a death, but that a person ignorant and uneducated, and whose mind was altogether corrupted, should all at once, on receiving his earliest instructions, perceive salvation and a heavenly glory in the accursed cross was truly astonishing. And that's a reality. This is a man who is apart from everything, um, instruction, theology, you name it, everyone else abandons. The apostles are gone. You know, um, the women are somewhat afar off. 
Peter, where are you at? James, John, there arrive. Peter's denied. This man stands there all alone without a teacher and an instructor, just Christ before him, and he comes with the most phenomenal of faith. Just born by the very Spirit of God. And he asks him, he begs for mercy, he lays no claim to it. He'll remember me. When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. Um, the idea is similar to Joseph. You remember Joseph and the butler, and the butler is freed. He says, he asked the butler, remember me when you arise to your position. In some sense, that's the idea. Remember me for good. When you get there in your kingdom, remember me, laying no claim to mercy. Um, he's humbled in heart. Doesn't ask for any great privilege. Doesn't deserve any place of prominence. He simply wants to be Remember, he's not concerned with the right hand or the left hand, prominent seating, great rewards. He's simply concerned with receiving the love of the mediator. The mediator, remember me. One commentator says the prayer which he addresses to Jesus is suggested by, to, to him by faith and an unlimited mercy which had been awakened in him by the hearing of the prayer of Jesus for his executioners. That very well may be true. That as he heard Jesus cry out, for the executioners. Well, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It could very well be that the Word of God pierced his heart in such a way um, that the Spirit brought him to life. And he thought, if he could forgive them, maybe he could forgive me too. I'm not sure exactly when this man was converted. And that's the great question too, isn't it? When was this man converted? There's no preacher there. There's no evangelistic sermon. There's no evidence that prayer was offered on his behalf. On that prior instruction was given by Christ. No, no prior instruction was given by Christ or a disciple prior to the crucifixion that we can tell. Yet this man repented of his sins, believed on Christ, and, it, and was admitted on that very day into paradise. He was converted, it seems, simply by the sovereign grace of God. Both men equally guilty. Both men had the same unbiblical, evil, blasphemous views of Jesus early on in the crucifixion. Both were blind. Both were deaf. Both were lame. Both were dumb. Both were without strength. Both in need of the Gospel. Both equally as wicked. Both in, in, in engaged in the same crime. One could repents and, and the other doesn't. What's the difference? I'm not sure. Other than the grace of God. I have no idea. I'm not here this morning to ease your conscience on the matter of why God um, accomplishes something in the lives of some and not others. I'm simply here to say that the fact that He does it to any of us, being at heart rebels, is just grace in and of itself. But we know the Scripture teaches in places such as 1 Corinthians 2 and, and Acts chapter 16 and 2 Corinthians 4 that it is God who commands light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know that God opens Lydia's heart in Acts chapter number 16. We know that in 1 Corinthians 2 that, it, that we see these things and we hear these things. We have eyes to see and ears to hear simply because the grace of God was affected in our lives when we heard the Word of God and the Spirit pervaded our souls. That it's more than just logic and it's more than just reason. It's more than just persuasive arguments. It's the grace of God effectively acting by the Spirit of God in the Word of God as it goes forth. So it could very well be 
That as the Word of God goes forth, those seven sayings of our Lord as He's there upon the cross, and it very well may be that as our Lord cries out for the forgiveness of even His executioners, that in that moment, that man is converted. He's saved by the grace of God. We know He's not baptized. We know He has no righteousness of His own. We know that He has nothing to bring of His own credit. We simply know that He casts Himself upon the mercy of the Lord and the mercy is received. We know that He was probably a Jew. We do know that, 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 with, that, that if He was Jewish, He would have had a, a glorious understanding in some sense of the Old Testament. It very well could have been as the Christ hang there before Him. It could have very well been that as He, as he goes up to Golgotha along with Him, beside Him, or sees Him coming, He sees a man suffer like He's never suffered before. He sees a man approach Golgotha like no man has before. He sees a heart in Him that is not in Him. He sees the Christ go before Him. It very well could have been that in that moment, our Lord, in a similar way to even John Newton, the, the, the writer of Amazing Grace, as he's blasphemously cussing against our Lord as a Navy man and upon a ship, I mean, at the lowest of lows as a slave, um, he, he remembers the words of his mother as she would teach him Scripture and God used something of former days to convert a man in the present now. It could be that as a young man in synagogue, he remembered Isaiah 53. He had committed it to heart. It could be that Psalm 22 was something that he meditated on day and night. And as he saw our Lord there ever before him, those, 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 those words in Isaiah 53, those words in Psalm 22, those words in Psalm chapter 110, the very Word of God came alive in his soul. That he had a decent theology because it was birthed in him by the Spirit of God as the Spirit applied the Scripture that was already resting upon his heart. It very well could be that faith came by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He could say in James 1.18, in accordance with that of His own will, He brought me forth by the very Word of truth. After all, the very Word of God was ever before Him. It wasn't because of logic. It wasn't because of skill. It wasn't great reasoning. It was simply the grace of God extended to Him in the effectual working of the very Spirit of God. Thus he has nothing to boast in. Like, look, look, if any of you are saved, you have nothing to boast in. He saved us. Not we ourselves. We have nothing to glory in. You know, there, some men look at salvation like, like, like you're out there, like in a sea, and the tempest is strong, and the gospel is just casting out a life preserver with men struggling in the ocean saying, grab on. You know, he walks through a battlefield graveyard of dead. Now, the, the gospel is, is that he walks through a battlefield graveyard of dead men who have fought against God and says, Lazarus, come forth. That's salvation. He reaches to the depths and he pulls out dead men out of the sea. Sometimes, you know, in healthcare, we have procedures that we do, and, and I've seen men die. They don't come back to life on their own. You know, 
They have some sense of a life in them as they shake there on the table as their, as their heart is just fibrillating within their body and, it, and just moments to go before they, they cease to exist in eternity and they take their last breath and what they need is an external source, someone to come along and take, a, and take, take 360 joules of electricity and rush that through their body. And they wake up and you know they, they don't have a, an idea what's going on. They don't have a clue what happened, but they know they're alive. You know, why? Because something externally came into them and invaded their body and gave to them a life that was not their own. This man wasn't looking for Jesus that day. This man didn't want a Savior like the Christ. But what happened was as he was raised upon that cross and that Christ was ever before him in such a way that he had never seen Him. Words were spoken. The Word of God went forth. And if nothing else, he saw before him a Christ um, of, of Old Testament prophecy in such a way that the Spirit of God enlivened his soul thus that he clings to Him and to Him alone. And he clings to His kingdom. He rushes to the cross ever before Him. And God willingly receives Him. Willingly. Isn't that amazing? Verse number 43, what does Jesus say to Him? Well, you need to go through a confirmation class. You know? Do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? Have you been baptized, young man, by immersion? You know? Assuredly, I say to you, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Son, we, we haven't seen yet the fruit of your conversion. We need six months before you'll be accepted into the church and membership. This man would have never made it. According to most men's standards today, he wouldn't have been received into membership. He, wouldn't have, he would have been put outside the church in some sense under, under legal obligation to produce fruit in himself and, and somewhat of a legalistic type of standard. But Jesus looks at him and says, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. Our Lord answers without delay. He knew that He couldn't wait. Our Lord doesn't berate him about his wickedness. He doesn't look to his evil deeds. He doesn't bring up an old life, even his blasphemous words just a few moments earlier, his wasted life, the lateness of his repentance, none of it. He doesn't bring any of it up. You know, he, he welcomes him. The, the, our Lord is slow to wrath, but He's rich in mercy. It takes Him a while to pour out His justice, but, but, but any time that a sinner comes to Him freely and humbly and openly, even upon a cross after just blaspheming His name, after He comes to the recognition of His own sins, acknowledges His own guilt before God and God's just right and penalty to, 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 to crucify Him and to, to, to send Him off into hell's, uh, hellful eternity for all of his life and says and, and throws himself at the very mercy of God. At that moment, faith and repentance is born and he's ready to be received. He is fit for heaven. He is forgiven of all sins. And abundant mercy is to all those who call upon him. Psalm 86 and verse number five for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon me. Here is a thief who cries out. And here is a God who responds immediately, immediately with the grace of Christ. 
And he says, where I am, there you will be also. Right? Heaven is yours. Paradise. Paul uses it in more than one occasion to speak of the heavenlies and the heavenly state. We know that to, 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 to depart from this world is to be present with Christ. And we know that, that, that Paul desired to leave this present world that he may gain Christ. He understood that, 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 that to, to live his gain, but, uh, to, to live as Christ, but to die his gain. And to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. That, that, that there is a confident assertion here by Christ, received by this man, that in that moment that he would remember him. There was confidence in his voice that he would be with him. That he would be with him. And you might think, what a wasted life. Or one might quickly say, what audacity. I mean, he just blasphemed that rich man or this man, ridiculed him, ostracized him. How dare he? But you could also say, what humility, right? What is acceptable to the Lord but a contrite spirit and a humble heart? If this is not pride, this is not audacity, this is total reliance upon a Savior. This is salvation, friends. This is how you all come. You just don't hang on a cross this morning physically behind our Lord. If any man comes, he comes totally by grace. He comes repenting of his sins. He comes acknowledging. I remember as a 15-year-old boy um, hearing the Gospel, not knowing um, Genesis or the book of Revelation, and hearing the Gospel and just coming to Christ and saying, Lord, would You save me about a thousand times. I didn't have the theology nearly as good as this man. But I do remember beyond a shadow of a doubt looking into the Gospel and hearing that message and realizing that if God would have sent me to hell, He had had every right to. That even as a 15-year-old boy, I had the seeds of a, of a rebel's heart in my own life, and it was only restrained by fear of man. That you take away the fear of man and the restraint of a civil magistrate, my mama out of the picture, and no teachers over me, I would have done all to my heart's content. And that lived in my heart. I heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ presented as a suffering Savior, yet realizing that if He had never saved me, it would have been right and just in doing so. Casting myself upon Him, saying, Lord, remember me. I don't know what I need, but I know that I need You. And if I'm going to be saved, it's only going to be saved by grace. Because I'm not good enough. Father, I'll let You down every single day of the rest of my life. And if I'm going to come, I'm not coming on merit. If I'm going to come, I'm not going to come on intellect because I'm not smart enough. If I'm going to come, Father, I'm not going to come um, based upon theological significance and, and orthodoxy, Father, because on most, uh, on most things, I was a heretic in those days. Because I didn't know um, left from why I, I'd never been discipled. I'd never read a Bible and I'd never finished a book. I couldn't have told you where the, uh, the book of Habakkuk was in the Bible. Um, but I knew enough to know that Jesus Christ was the Savior of all the world. And if, if anybody was going to come, they were going to come by Him because we were not good enough. And I just, just threw myself on the Lord that day. And I've been casting myself for the, re for, for the last 23 years of my life, just been doing it every single day. You know, like that's salvation. And I'm no model. Um, 
I'm just telling you that that's what this man did. And that's what you need to do. And that that's not a wasted life. If it takes a cross and a, and, a, and a rebel's life to bring you to the Lord, then praise God for that. You know, don't don't revel in the fact of your sin. That that you know, Paul even argues that, right? You know, um, there's some out there arguing that I'm going to sin that grace may abound. God forbid. But we do know that in sin, grace abounds, and thus we cling to the cross. Some may say, "What a wasted life." Some may say, "What audacity." I say, "What a savior," and what a blessed man. That in the last moments of his life, he could see the Savior high, holy, and lifted up, crucified ever before him for sinners just like him. And in that moment, he could give him the assurity that, that on that day, all of his sins were forgiven. Not one did he bring up. And not one will he yours on that great day. But if you've thought of the dying thief as a poor, hopeless case or a wasted life who's put off repentance, I want you to think of him in the most grand of ways this morning. Who has had such faith as this man? Let us remember that at this point all the disciples had forsaken him and fled. John might be lingering at a distance. Holy women stood farther off. But no one was present bravely enough to champion the dying Christ. Judas sold him. Peter denied him. The rest had forsaken him. And it was in this moment that this dying thief rejects all of his life, his comrades, his nation, and clings to the Lord and the Lord alone in the midst of all opposition. And he clings to Him with those simple words, remember me when you come. Remember me. That's no small amount of faith. He asks for the aid of no dying of a, of, of a dying man at crucifixion. He, he, he's not putting his faith in this man. He knows he will die. He must be God. He must be the Messiah. His faith is grand. It's repentant. It's grounded in truth. It's bold. It's confrontational. It's evangelistic. It's humble. It's confident. It's hopeful. It's so many things. Brothers and sisters, may we have faith like this. Right? More seems to be done in the heart of this man in the fraction of a moment of a day than seems to be done in a lifetime of most Christians today. We live in a world that allows Christianity to be unrepentant, not grounded in truth, Frail and fragile, non-confrontational, non-evangelistic, prideful, arrogant, unconfident, and, and discouraged with a lack of hope. Not this man. This man possessed the Spirit of Christ and the very faith of Christ, and he took to, bank, to the bank that, that, that last and great promise. And listen, you should as well. May this man's faith encourage us as we glory in the fact that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And He saves them by faith. And He puts in them the very Spirit of God. And that Spirit is a Spirit in which will take us to the ends of this age and the earth. And while this man only has five minutes left to live, he lives it all to the glory of God. And you may have decades. And the demand is the same. Whatever God has given you, Give all to His glory. And that as your faith expresses itself, may it too express itself just as grand. Just as grand. 
Maybe it's because in that moment he had an understanding that he only had a few minutes left. And maybe our apathy and indifference is to think that we have 30 more years. And the reality is, is that you don't have a clue what a day will bring. And thus your faithlessness is manifested in apathy and indifference because you think you've got all the time in the world. Well, I stand up here today and beg you and implore you and exhort you and warn you that today is the day of salvation. That if you think because of this text that you can live a life of, a life of sinfulness and lasciviousness and, and that you have a license to sin and that on the end of, at the end of your life you will repent on your deathbed and get it right with God so that you can have salvation, you are a fool. That today is the day of salvation that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. That God may require an account of everything in this very moment and that that salvation is more than just fire insurance and a get-out-of-jail-free card. That it is a life lived to the enthroned Christ, the crucified One before you. And when you see Him high and holy and lifted up and suffering for your sake with a promise of God attached to it and you realize that, 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 that you are in Christ, it gives you a faith to live not only tomorrow but today. That we need a we need a, we need a people that will live today, as if today is the last day. If you were to die today, men, would your children know the gospel, or have you been waiting for the right time? Today's the right time, you know. Like I'll get to it next week. I'll begin to, to raise my children, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Like I, I need to, I need to get a few things in order. I need to get my ducks in a row. I, I feel like a hypocrite. You're going to feel like a hypocrite every day until you do it. Be faithful to the Lord. Cling to Him. Begin to raise up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Go to work and love every moment of it because God has ordained for you to be there. And you can be creative with your hands and you can reflect Him and that God is, has just just, just wrought a spirit within you and that, 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 that through that faith you are emblemizing and, 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 and being an example to the world of Him. Christ needs more of Him, therefore, church. They need more of you. The world needs you. Like I look around and people ask me, what's the answer for today? Is it a new president? Is it a new economy? Is it this or that? It's a, the bubble's about to pop in about 15 different areas. What's the answer? Like I come to church on Sunday and I look at it. It's you. Man, it's you. It's you who, who have been wrought by the Spirit of Christ, have a faith in Him such that, that, that with resolve you wake up every single day and you honor Him in the little things. You love your wife like Christ loved the church when you don't want to. You sacrifice self and you cling to her. You wake up and you go to the Word of God when you want to read the paper or turn on YouTube or, or look at Facebook. You, you, you run to Him. Like you turn on Fox News and when you get discouraged, you think, assuredly, <laughs> assuredly our Lord says and that if He gave us His only Son, how shall He not freely also give us all things? And when you think that things are about to go down, you remind yourself with the promises of God and you cling to the Word and you cling to faithfulness. That's what we need. We need men who will just wake up and, and seek to honor God in the little things and through, that, through, through taking control of yourselves and taking control of your, 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 your families and taking control of your work life. You'll be an example to Christ. And you'll be amazed at the men that will come and follow you as you follow Him. I mean like flies to a flame.
gnats to a flame. Why? Because and it won't be able to be explained. You know? Not at all. It'll be like that dying man on the, on the cross. I don't know why he believed. Other than he saw Christ. I don't know why I believe today. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. I don't know why I woke up one day and just put my faith in Christ. Other than one day, God showed me myself and God showed me Him. And He was altogether lovely. And I was a wretched sinner in need of saving. You know? I don't have a great method of reform or change in this world. Um, other than the church. Other than men, women, and children who are saved by the grace of God who have resolved and determined to live out their lives like Christ in this life. And when they see you, they see Him. And one day they'll come along and you won't have a clue why. And they won't either. But they believe. Because the Spirit of God has used the Word of God and used your example in their lives to make them just like His Son. The Gospel goes forth not only in word, but also in deed and together. And they are powerful. And that's what we need. We need more men who will hang on a cross, profess Christ, repent of their sins, and just live faithfully with the time that they have left. That's all He did. And as J.C. Ryle said this morning, um, these letters should be written in gold. And it's hard telling the untold myriads of people that have came to Christ as a result of this man's faith. And that's true of all of us. You know? That's true of all of us. I know you don't, many of you don't want to be an example, but the reality is, is that all of you are representatives of Christ. And you either represent Him well or you represent Him poorly. But either way, you represent Him. And the world sees the type of Savior you serve and either rejects or receives Him. When the world looks at you, what do they see? I pray that they see a resolved, bold faith that is repentant, confident, hopeful, and looking to Christ just like this man. Let us not relegate the thief on the cross um, to a second-rate Christian or to a particular population of people. Uh, the Gospel that converted Him is the same Gospel that converted all of us. And what boldness that should give us as we go into the world. Listen, you don't have to be the most eloquent person in the world. You don't have to have the Gospel on all your ducks in a row. You don't have to have a systematic theology. Um, you don't have to necessarily teach a Bible class. You know, um, The Spirit of God uses fallible men in this life um, to, 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 to work in fallible things and eternal works. I've never given the Gospel perfectly. I've never preached a message I was happy with. I've never done anything in this life where I looked at it and said, like, like I've attained. Nothing. Nothing. I've simply begged God to take the little things that I have and, and, and tried to be faithful and just prayed, Father, remember me. I don't know what I'm doing on most days. I don't have a clue. You know? I'm just trying to be faithful. And the reality is, is that every man that's ever been converted throughout the, uh, this world outside of Jesus Christ has came um, by, as a result of an imperfect invitation from men and women who have simply tried to be faithful 
to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thus it should embolden you to be a light to a lost and a dying world and carry the gospel wherever you go. You know Why? Because that's all He ever uses. Man, that's all He ever uses to convert children. It's just men striving to be faithful. And thus let us strive to be faithful. And let us be emboldened because we carry a gospel that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And when we're not looking, He's saving and converting and doing a supernatural work when you at least expect it. And that's the gospel, friends. I love it. I love hearing your stories. I love hearing how you got converted so many times. I hear, you know, I was listening to a sermon on church discipline. <laughs> I heard that from a guy one time. The pastor's up there cringing in his booth because so many visitors had came. And afterwards, he's like, I, I wanted to preach a gospel message, but I'd, I'd planned to preach on church discipline. He said, oh, what I would have done to change in that moment. Afterwards, God saved a man. Why? Because, because he was a rebel at heart. God knows what you need. God knows what those people need. God knows what the world needs. And, it, and the Word of God changes the heart according to the Spirit of God as He shows them Christ and shows them themselves. And all He desires for us is to be simply faithful. So let us be faithful. May, may we be encouraged this morning by a dying thief's faith in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. Father, Father, I pray that I've not wasted the last hour. I feel as though I preached in my own strength a large portion, if not all, of the sermon. Father, would you take it anyway? and accomplish Your work with it. Father, I need You now even to work in my own heart to make me more like Your Son. Father, we come to You not better than a thief on a cross, but the same at heart. Rebels, enemies against a holy God. And all we have to do, Father, is to cast ourselves completely upon You. Father, show us Christ this morning. Show us Your glory. Father, put His life and death ever before our eyes. Even as we are being penalized and disciplined, chastised, Father, for our own sins, may You place them ever before us, Father, showing us the grace if we would only cling to Him. So Lord, this morning, I pray that You do that in the minds of everyone. Father, insomuch as I failed to present clearly what I desired, fumbling, Father, over so many words and sentences and thoughts, my mind racing at times, wondering even where to go. Father, I trust that it's in Your hands now. And You can use even the worst attempts, Father, um, to make Your Son known. Father, I think about the blasphemers upon the cross. And even as they mocked our Lord as a King, I think about, oh, how You could have even used that to convert souls, seeing that there was truth in it. And Father, we pray this morning the same. That You would just use us, Father, sinners saved by the grace of God, 
to do eternal things. Help us, Father, to, to think on Christ. Put Him ever before the minds of our children. Father, that He may change them. May we stop seeking, Father, to, to force what you're, what you're trying to accomplish and simply live out a faithful life, Father. That all those that are around us may see and glory in the Christ. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.